Welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. We are your hosts, Bill Taub and Dave Tilley. This is Dave Tilley uh, with my friend Phil Taub, and we're here on Homeland's Heroes Salute, and we are uh, excited to have a great guest, uh, George Munson, on with us. He is a New Hampshire Army National Guard veteran, but also active duty veteran. And we also uh, had the privilege of having his wife, who's also a military veteran, uh, Ginger, on one of our uh, previous shows. And we're we're very happy to welcome you, George. Well, thank you, David. And so so tell us a little bit about yourself. What got you interested uh, early on in your life? You've now served over... uh, 30 years in our armed forces. Uh, what sparked your interest in joining the service? Um, I would say it, it was in my family. Uh, my grandfather was in the Army Air Corps. I think that's what they called it back in World War One. My dad served in the Army for a few years back in the 50s in the Korea time and had some um, somewhat distant cousins that uh, flew helicopters in Vietnam. Um, and people around me in town, and um, it was just a um, something that I always wanted to do. I looked at possibly going to one of the academies when I was in high school, um, but um, decided not to, um, but always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to join the military at some point, either the um, Army, Air Force, or Navy. I really wasn't thinking Marine Corps at the time, but um, one of those. Um, it just I think it just was organic to our family. Um, um, and people around us. Um, and I think that's really where it came from. Yeah, you, you grew up around it, and it was something that you you always felt the uh, need to be a part of and to serve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so tell us a little bit about those uh, early years of service. Well, it's what, funny because I, um, I I'll, I'll tell you how I ended up joining. I. Um, yeah. Um, after college, I was kind of dubbing around and not really doing much. Um, I had moved back home, um, but then I ended up living up in, uh, I, I grew up in Long Island and I ended up living up at a friend's house up in um, Westchester. My mom was a little bit concerned about me because I wasn't really doing much. Um, I was working, but not really satisfied. And she actually um, uh, knew that I wanted to fly in the military um, from all the years of talking about it. And she sent me a New York Times, she always read the Times on Sundays, a New York Times advertisement for um, what was called a warrant officer flight program where you could enter. Sure. And um, so I I thought, oh, it's funny. She sent me the news clipping um, in a letter. And so I went down to the local recruiter in Carmel, New York, and uh, spoke to him. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. It takes too long. I'm not interested. <laughs> I kept pestering him and I talked him into it. And finally, um, um, I started putting together a flight pack and it took close to two years, um, with the, the flight physicals and different, uh, different things that I had to do. He was very good. He drove me down to Fort Dix. He drove me out to Newburgh, you know, stayed in the, stayed in the hotel rooms. And, uh, it was a pretty good thing. It took a long time. And then the flight packet goes to a board. Um, it's not a, you don't, um, you're not present at the board. It's just a packet review. And I was actually turned down four times. Uh, over the period of about six months, and I was really, I was really getting bombed. I was going to go do something else, and I, I went to the recruiter, and uh, he said, "That's it. I'm not doing it anymore. You can, you want to, you want to be a crew chief. You want to do something else, but I'm not going to do this anymore." And I said, "Do it one more time." His name was First Sergeant Goss. And he said, "Please, just do it one more time." And I talked him into it, and he did, and I got accepted on the fifth try. It's pretty funny. Um, oh my goodness, the tenacity! <laughs> <laughs> and that was about two and a half years. Um, and he was so excited. He just couldn't believe it. He just, he just thought that was the best. And then he told me it's the last one I'm doing. <laughs> and, um, the, the, the funny or the interesting part to that is I knew it's really something I wanted to do. And, um, I don't mean this to brag or anything. Cause it just turned out, I, it turned out I was pretty good at flying helicopters and I took to it very quickly. And I ended up, um, gradu- graduating top of my class. Um, and I went back to him later. He was still there. <laughs> And he didn't know who I was because I was a warrant officer by then. And uh, he was he was 
shocked that I came back to see him, but I told him, I said, Hey, I really appreciate it. I did well. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And and because of that, I ended up, there was a, there was a big need for Cobra pilots at the time. And um, in my class, uh, there was only one slot for the aircraft I was in. And they said, um, you're top of the class. It's first choice. Do you want to go Cobras or do you want to stay in Huey's? And um, I said, no, I want to stay in Huey's and I want to go to Korea because that's what my instructor pilots kept telling me to do, get experience. And so I did. I even had one kid in my class offer me 500 bucks um, <laughs> to trade him. But I didn't do it. <laughs> so off, off to Korea, I went. <laughs> yeah. that, that's... After a year... It was, yeah, it was about a year, 15 months after I went into basic. 16 months later, I was in Korea as a Warrant Officer 1 helicopter pilot. Yeah. That's incredible. And and you you mentioned that you went in after, in the military after school? Yeah. After, mm-hmm. after college? Yep. Mm-hmm. That's that's tremendous. So, so it was uh, compared to a, a lot of soldiers a little later, too. Yeah, I was 24 at the time, and, and he, Goss kept telling me, he said, why don't you just uh, go as a commission officer? And I said, nope, because everything I've heard is to be a warrant officer if I want to fly. So I kind of had my mind made up, and, and I was sticking to it. <coughs> Dave, I'll jump in here a second, because I'm always fascinated about learning to fly helicopters, because, you know, I've been fortunate to fly in a few, and I always feel like they fighting gravity, you know, like they're not supposed to fly, you know, right. and I understand they're harder to learn than to fly a more traditional airplane. But tell us a little bit about learning to fly helicopters. I mean, how long does it take to get proficient? What kind of training do you get? What was that like? Well, it's, <clears throat> it's very quick. I mean, there's a, there's, I'd say a month or so of what they call ground school. So learning, we had to go through um, aeromedical stuff, aerodynamics, a few different things, but pretty quickly they just, put you in the helicopter with an instructor pilot and off you go. I mean, they teach you the ground part, the pre-flight and the run up and you do some sim- simulator time. And, and um, so you get kind of familiar with it that way. And even more, more simulator use nowadays, it was pretty rudimentary back then in the eighties, but um, um, pretty advanced, but they, they put you in the helicopter and the only way you can learn is by doing it. So I remember um, the first day in the thing, I was a, a little, um, I was a little nervous and the, uh, the instructor pilot was very good. He, you know, there's three sets of controls. You have your pedals with, with your feet and then the, the stick that you hold is called the cyclic. And then in, on the left side is the collective. That's the up down. And um, he gave me one at a time. First, he gave me the pedals for the heading control, left, right, got that. He held the other two. Then he gave me just the cyclic and he had the other two. And then, then he let me try the collective. And then he said, okay, you're, you're a natural here you go. You have all the controls. Hold it where it is. And for about, we were at a hover for about a second and a half. I held it where it was. And then, <laughs> and, and then it started going all over the place and I, I was lost. He grabbed the controls and he told me to relax. He said he could teach my grandmother quicker than me. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it came quickly um, within um 20 hours of flying, they, um, I think it was 20 hours with an instructor pilot. They put you in the helicopter on your, on your own. They call it solo flight. And, um, so after 20 hours, I was in it myself and flying it with, um, with my stick buddy. Um, and, and it, it's a building block, you know, they start really simple and they build and build. Um, and, and after that we went on to, um, instrument flying, which was very difficult. And that was a couple of months, a lot of simulator. It was difficult, and then in the aircraft, and I, I picked the night. I was on the night schedule, so I was flying like eleven at night till two in the morning, um, and then um, then they put you into basic combat tech tactics. And for about two or three months, you fly just army tactics down low in the weeds and fast and um, maneuvering and and um, learning things like time on target to when you take off to when you're there and. Um, and that's about it. And I think it was a total of, it was about nine to 10 months of flying when we finally were finished. Uh, about I, At the time, it was about 172 hours. I came out an official Army helicopter pilot. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that's incredible what, what they fit in in that amount of 
of time. Yeah. What What was some of uh, your most challenging experiences through that training? Uh, instrument, instrument flying was very difficult. Um, that's when you're just flying um, in reference to the instruments and not outside. Um, it was very hard to learn that. Um, and some people really struggle with it. A fair number of um, of uh, flight school pilots don't make it through the instrument phase. It's something you just have to learn and practice. Um, it's difficult in a helicopter, especially without um, autopilot or much assist. Um, you're really balancing a top and you're doing it without looking outside and just referencing instruments. And at the time, it was very rudimentary. You know, there's no GPS. There's no stabilization in the helicopter. So you're flying in clouds and bumps and at night and rain. And um, it was pretty stressful. And then having to figure out the whole piece of navigating and and let different landing systems and how you let down to the airport. And it was very, very difficult at times. Um, but I, I made it through. I did I did pretty well. I didn't I wasn't the best at that, but I did pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> and the tactical flying was the exciting part after that. That was just a blast. You know, that was kind of like what you see in the movies, you know, when you're down low and flying and you know, um, that was a lot of fun, that that piece. And that was pretty long, but I, I, I enjoyed that the most. Yeah. That's incredible. And then where, where was your first uh, uh, stationing after training? It was um, Seoul Air Base, um, K-16, which was just south of Seoul. It's a, it's a Korean air base. Um, the Army has a piece of it, and they did. Um, and I flew general support out of there. I flew a lot. Um, um, about two months after I showed up, I had been trained in the unit and was flying with other um, other pilot in commands. That's the or the captain in in in, in vernacular of airlines. And um, a pilot in command is what you really want to be um, coming out of flight school. And normally it takes a long time. And it was another one of those timing things where everybody. Um, there wasn't anybody else. And one day they said, Hey Munson, come on, you're going to, we're going to make you a pilot in command. I was like, well, wait a second. I've only been here two months. And they said, we don't care. We need you. Timing, 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 you know? And, uh, um, so I went out and took, a, um, an evaluate flight eval and, um, some written tests and they made me a pilot in command. And from there I took off because I was one of only a few pilot in commands and I flew almost every day and all kinds of different missions. And I flew on the, the DMZ, I became a, um, a pilot that navigated what they called the corridors and independent John and all this stuff. It was a lot of fun, a lot of supply missions up on the mountains, um, bringing food. And, um, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was very challenging, but I learned a ton in just that 11 months that I was there flying. And, and that, and that assignment, were you you're there for a year long? Yes. Yep. And what, what was that like living in Korea? I loved it. It was like the Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, it was right after the Seoul Olympics. And it was um, it was pretty carefree. Um, you know, it's it was uh, it was fun because we could go into the city um, and see different things. I actually took time to to go visit places like different temples. Um, mm -hmm. I went to Incheon because I was. I knew a little bit about MacArthur's Landing in, um, in the Korean War. I was really curious what that looked like. Um, spent some time down south in some of the bigger cities just as a tourist and really enjoyed it. I didn't have a lot of time for that, but some. And then um, uh, managed to take a trip. To, um, I took a week or two weeks off and flew around a little bit of Southeast Asia. It was pretty cool. Yeah. I liked. I really liked Korean food. I liked the Korean people. Um, it was, they were just, uh, uh, I just liked their culture. I don't know. And the way yeah. they are, I, I just like Koreans. So, yeah. And where were you living on the, uh, on the base? Yeah. Yeah. And the small, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. I, w I was just curious if you were on a base type of, uh, housing yeah. situation or. Yeah, it was, um, it was, uh, the army's cut out of that uh, K-16 Seoul Air Base. And it had been there for a long time. It was um, cinder block. I was in the um, the officer quarters and it was, it's a fancy term for cinder block, you know, 10 by 15 rooms with a bunk 
and a, a microwave <laughs> and a chair and a desk <laughs> and a, a phone you shared with about six other rooms <laughs> and um, no air conditioning. It was really had heat, but it was um, really hot and muggy in the summertime. And so everybody had fans and we would you'd just sleep sweating with, you know, like you can be here in New Hampshire sometimes <laughs> with a fan. Um, cinder block um but it was it was a lot of fun yeah and do we hear uh is this where you met your wife yes uh, yep yep that's where we met she was she was flying in the um in the same unit yeah it was funny i just i trained her early on um and you know don't take this the wrong way but i i wasn't really attracted to her she was just another lieutenant to me and i was like all right and she she was a good pilot which uh i liked um so I flew with her a bunch and then I don't know, later on I I I kind of just started liking her. <laughs> I, I was so focused on flying and doing that. I wasn't really I wasn't really thinking about anything else. It was kind of funny, but <laughs> Yeah. And was she was she one of just a few female pilots at that time? Yeah, we had um we had five or six maybe in our unit. So yeah. we had about a hundred and maybe 150 or 60 in our company. It was an old H series. And we had probably, um, I'm guessing about 40 pilots, maybe, you know, something like that, maybe 35, 40 pilots. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so when did you guys get married? Was it soon after that or? Uh, no, it was, it was uh, two or three years later. We got married in 92. So 90, yeah, two years. I, I actually left and uh, ended up, another story ended up at Fort Campbell in 101st and off to Desert Storm and she went to um, Fort Huachuca, Arizona for a military intelligence school um, and then um, she got assigned to Fort Campbell where I was in Kentucky and so we continued from there but didn't see each other for a while. So so it was by luck that you ended up at the same uh Sort of. She asked to go there so she was stalking me. <laughs> 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 we 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 had we had talked um a lot i really liked her and she uh i encouraged her to see if she could get to fort campbell and she did yeah oh that's a, wow that's great and then ha what was it like with both of you serving together uh in korea it wasn't really that big of a deal we weren't in the same mm -hmm. platoon and um i didn't fly with her a whole lot occasionally um and at Fort Campbell, it was much bigger. Um, and she was in a completely different battalion than I. I was in an air cav unit and she was in a um, support battalion, um, even on the other side of post. So, I, you know, we, we worked in completely different areas. Well, that's something. How, how long were you at Fort Campbell? Four years. Well, I, I was stationed at Fort Campbell. I don't think I was actually on Fort Campbell for more than about a year with all of the deployments and training. But I kind of joke about that. Yeah, so you went off to Desert Storm then at that point, right? I did. I, when I when I came back from Korea, um, they my orders were were for me to go to back to Fort Rucker um, to transition into the Black Hawk helicopter and then report to Fort Campbell, and that would have been in August. And that's right when Saddam went into Kuwait. Um, I remember sitting in the SeaTac airport and we're, I was at the USO waiting on a flight for a couple of hours and there was boat racing going on in Seattle and everybody was watching that. And then a news flash came up that said this guy named Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And everybody's like, who cares? Put him back to boat racing. <laughs> Little do we know we're all right. heading over there in a few months. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So, so that so it was that that was like your first then brush with combat at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I ended up at Fort Campbell um in an air cavalry unit. I was at Fort Campbell for about a month. They put me through air assault school, maybe less than a month, and then shipped me over there. Um and we ended up uh the, the aviation brigade was in a parking garage at a at an airport that was being built. It was a massive parking garage, kind of like Boston, kind of huge. Um, parking garage um, and all our aircraft were there on the ramp about 300 aircraft and 5,000 of us in this one parking garage just living on cots spent about a month there doing some flying and some training they they assigned us to um, uh, division main um, which 
was they were utilizing what's called LERS-D, long-range surveillance detachment guys. So they're they're kind of, um, they're all ranger, ranger qualified. Uh, they're military intelligence guys, but they're also infantry. And they're kind of on the ground, eyes and ears back then, um, before a lot of satellite imagery and other things. They still utilize LERS-D some. Um, specialty kind of guys with pretty cool equipment. And we ended up training with them. And then prior to the, the ground offensive in late January, when the air war was still going on, we started inserting them early February. We started inserting them up into the Euphrates River Valley and, and different jumping points that the 101st was going to set up um, operating bases out of. And that was pretty exciting. We did a lot of late nighttime flying with these guys and, and putting them out in the desert and then five days later, getting them and moving them. And, we, you know, it was it was pretty exciting. Low, fast, dark, crazy a little bit. Um, I remember one night flying over um, an entire tank battalion or something of Iraqis. And they they I was freaked. We didn't see it on satellite imagery. Nobody did. I guess they had moved there. And we went right over the top. <laughs> oh, 50 feet and 150 knots at 2 o'clock in the morning. And it was wild. They all—they were all running, though. What you could see, they were running. They—they they thought we were there to attack them or something, but just flew by them. <laughs> um, did that for a couple of months, and then we—we we had some. We, our aircraft was damaged. Um, we had some really severe bird strikes, and ended up sitting on the maintenance for a, a couple of weeks. And then I went back up into um, where we had put all the LRSD up in this place called uh, Asamawa. Which is out near the, on the Euphrates or Tigris, um, north of Nazaria, and then we did um, detainee ops and um, quick reaction stuff. The Apaches were up there, and some of the Cobras. And did that for a while. Then I came back uh, to Fort Campbell in May timeframe. Yeah. Oh, one thing I, that people might find interesting that I tell sometimes um, while working with the LRSD. We were there were three of three Blackhawks and two Apaches, and we all stayed together and moved around on our own. So every night we'd set up um, defensive positions if we parked somewhere. And anyway, um, we had no supply chain of any kind. We would sometimes run and get um, water and MREs from different places where we knew they were. But for 72 days, and I counted them later, I didn't get a shower or a bath or anything. 72 days, we somebody had a had a scissors so we cut all our hair right down <laughs> we were filthy living in and under and around the helicopter for about two and a half months with nothing else no communication with anybody other than on our radios and being told where to go it's pretty wild yeah. is that where you fly with all the windows and doors open uh, we we actually kept them closed at the time. Then we still do that. The tactics are that that you fly with them closed, um, yeah, um, because you don't want people to see what's inside, right? Um, um, so we we didn't remove the front doors. Uh, we they do that now sometimes. Um, I personally don't like it because it, it, too much dust gets in the aircraft. Um, but um, yeah, everything is closed up. <laughs> could imagine the dust must have been brutal there. Oh, yeah, when you don't land on pavement of any kind, um, it's there are places where it's just talcum powder and and or it's it's sand like grit, not not sand like a beach, more like grit, um, and it 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 wears on everything. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a good experience. It really was. It was fun living with the infantry. Um, you know, I'd watch them in the morning. We we. We used to joke with them, you know, we, we brought a lot of stuff with us, you know, stoves and um, different things. And so we'd heat up water. Um, and th these thirsty guys would, at night, would lie in a ditch somewhere and cover themselves with a poncho liner. And, and you know, I'd see them in the morning and they'd break open an MRE because that's all we had for three months was MREs. And they'd break one open and they'd be chewing on the Taster's Choice packet. And, you know... <laughs> I'd say to him, I said, you want some hot water? Like, no, sir. You know, and they just see him crunching, you know, and some of them would joke around and they'd take up the, the creamer and sugar packets and put it in there and say, I like it light and sweet. <laughs> no water. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Tough guys. Tough they guys. are very tough. No, very tough.
Yeah. So then you're back stateside for a while, and and then what happens next after that? Uh, well, I, the next three years I was at Fort Campbell. Um, went did a lot of training um, exercises. Um, they they have um, national training site center and the the JRTC, which is the Joint Readiness Training Center. Um, I did six rotations to those, at least a month long. Just train, train, train. Um, ended up doing a pretty cool mission to. Um, we we self deployed our helicopters, a bunch of us down to Puerto Rico. That was fun. Um, and did a mission down there off um, the end of Puerto Rico. We stayed on a, a Navy, an old Navy base called Roosevelt Roads, Rosie Roads, and um, did a mission out on Vieques um, Impact Area, which is now closed. Um, it's a beautiful area. Um, ended up getting married um, at some point there in the middle. Um, it was pretty uneventful other than I flew a lot and, um, um, you know, trained a lot. And nothing, nothing really stands out while I was there. We, we did a lot of, um, just a lot of hard training. A lot of time was spent in the field in tents and that kind of thing. Um, and then two, two very different, uh, I mean, I, th I think it's fascinating. You had such different uh, foreign assignments too, you know, between South Korea and, uh, and being over in, uh, in Kuwait. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I never, I'd never been to Kuwait. Actually, I was in Saudi and then Iraq under the storm. I went back to Kuwait later in 2015 um, on a different mission when I was in the guard. Yeah. Um, and at some point there, um, I was, I had orders in 90, late 93, I had orders to go to Germany to go to the instructor pilot course at Fort Rucker and route to Germany. And um, my wife, Ginger, um, they, her orders weren't going to be for another year. So I would be in Germany for a year while she would still be at Fort Campbell. And then the Army said, um, we're not going to guarantee domestic domicile within 100 miles in Germany. So we, we kind of thought, wow, we're going to be apart for a year. And then if you deploy to Germany, they're not going to guarantee that we can even be together. And so we started kind of thinking about maybe we'll get out, um, get out of the active duty doesn't seem like that's going to work to stay married, <laughs> really. Um, we ended up, um, I knew in New Hampshire, I'd seen helicopters flying up in Concord, Army helicopters, and I knew where the hangar was. And we decided to come up and see if we could find someone and talk to them. Um, you know, it was really before email and social media, and it was the old school. Um, go talk to somebody. <laughs> what, what, what year was that around? That was 94. Up in '94, yes. So they hadn't they hadn't yet built the new uh, no. the hangars. The hangars in Concord were around uh, 2000, uh, I think. Yeah, the hangar is where the Joint Forces Headquarters building is. That's the old hangar there. Yeah. Wow, interesting. So that's what ended up uh, bringing you up to New Hampshire. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Now that and, and some family and and some work. Um, we came up and interviewed. And um, they were thrilled to have us. They had some openings, so um, we put in resignation paperwork with the active duty. And and um, much to the chagrin of one of my commanders, um, he, he said, "I figured you for a lifer. Where are you going?" <laughs> and I said, "No, I'm going to go fly in the guard." And um, we came up here in April, April of '94. Yeah, and uh, joined the guard. I, 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 we both were in the unit um, by that summer. And flying um, and really enjoying it it was nice it was uh, it became a traditional guardsman so it was um it was weekends you know one weekend a month basically in a in a two to four week period of annual training sometime during the year yeah what what was that like what uh you know going from active to guard i've done that my myself but not to the extent of your career it was really difficult at first. I felt like I'd made a mistake because I felt kind of isolated. Um, you know, the guard, when you come together, it's great because that's the, that's the brotherhood kind of the tribe. I understood everybody. They understood me. We all had the same kind of motivation and intent of what we were doing. Um, but it was quick. It was just for a weekend. And then it was, see you later. I'll see you next month. And so, so going to work with my family was great, but I really missed that, um, collective 
tribe of all going in one direction, everybody pulling one direction, everybody speaking the same language. Um, that was a little hard for me at first. I'd say that first year I was kind of regretting what I had done. Um, not that I didn't like the people that I had joined, but that maybe I had made a bad decision. Um, but that that quickly changed. I, I'd say within a year or so, I, I realized that it was really nice to, to know that I was staying where I was, that I could still go play army and fly helicopters, but that I could also walk away from it and go back to um, just traditional civilian work. And I really enjoyed that. I think that was probably the most fun I've had in the army. I did it for about 17 years that way as a traditional guardsman. I really enjoyed um, that. Yeah, it was kind of, um, it was just, um, it was difficult to balance because the requirements um, can be difficult, especially in aviation. We have a lot of additional flying we have to do. Um, and, the, you know, the mountain rescues that we've done over the years, um, you know, get called in for that. But it's exciting, but it's just more away from work. And it can be very challenging at times. And then um, my wife, Ginger, stopped flying in a 96 or 97 after we started having children. She decided that that she would put it aside for now and raise the kids for that and put and raise the kids. And, and it became very difficult for her at times because the amount of time I was working in our business and then the amount of time I was gone on weekends and for different schools, a lot of schools in aviation, a lot of time away. Um, it was challenging at times. There was no doubt. And, and I'm actually surprised that I've stayed as long as I have. And I, the only answer I have is that I, I kept really having fun and enjoying the army and what I did. So that's great. I don't, I don't know if you experienced any of that Dave. Huh? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, and I, I know what you mean about the, uh, you know, when you're active duty, uh, especially around a base, you're really, uh, a family that's your community right and you and you've got the um the family support uh connection line when when you're in in guard uh you're right everyone's got their day job you do have that camaraderie when you're when you're together or when you're out on a uh a mission but then everyone goes back to their uh in their their normal lives yeah and so it is uh the the two are uh are different, but so important. And I know with my guard duty, though, I was just uh, surprised by how tired I was. <laughs> yes, you, you know, because you're you're really putting in a ton of hours on that weekend, and then you get yep. back, and and then you start off your uh, regular job routine. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Everybody else, yeah, everybody else had a weekend off, and you've been out, you know, playing army and having a great time and doing good things, but tired. <laughs> 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 and what, what were some of what were some of your uh you know highlights uh and you're still in the guard so, so some of some of your high, highlights to date in your uh in your guard service well i um i um a lot of uh, uh i learned a lot when i came to new hampshire it's a med medevac medical evacuation state at the time mm -hmm. so i hadn't done that i was an air cav guy you know out front all that stuff um attack 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 and um, I had to learn medevac and what that was. I, I'd see them around and I kind of knew who they were, but it's a very different mission set than what I'd been used to. And they sent me off to school, um, a medevac um, doctrine course, so I could understand what that was and started flying um, medevac in the state and um, with doing hoist missions and um, um, understanding how the, 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 um, the routine of a medevac unit is and how it operates and the processes were very different. Um, I liked it in a lot of ways because it was much more um, single ship, I'll say, you know, you're kind of doing it on, you're out there on your own making decisions rather than in a group of aircraft. Um, I, um, I, I was able to do early on a couple of rescue missions up in the mountains. You know, you see those on the news occasionally. We still do them today. Um, a lot oh, sure, the yeah stranded hikers and yeah people heard or those i've got some stories about those that i've been on but um um if you ever want to read an interesting couple of books um um uh, gagney wrote a couple of books he came and interviewed us at times i'm not in them but um where you'll find me in the last traverse um great storytelling 
um, about rescue missions here in New Hampshire, a lot to do with fish and game and, um, and um, some to do with the helicopter mission, but um, that kind of thing. It was really neat learning that, that thing. And then um, um, ended up in 2004, we were activated for Iraq as a medevac unit. And we ended up, um, we ended up going over there for, I was actually gone 17 months, but we ended up in, in Iraq for, a year um, north of Baghdad, we pretty much owned northern Iraq at the time, and we were extremely busy. Um, we did—I uh, forget the number. It's—it's it's something like I don't know, four thousand hours, two thousand combat missions, three thousand pa- you know patients in our in our group of fifteen helicopters that year. It was really busy, um, and and it was kind of dangerous at times, and not just the threat of being shot at or that kind of thing or blown up it was the threat of uh, weather and some of the flying in those dust storms and things was pretty nerve-wracking um but certainly the threat the, the 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 real threat of you know bullets and bombs um which is always there but um that was a that was a difficult deployment but probably one of the most rewarding that i've done um that and in, in that we operated extremely well as a unit um, got a lot of kudos. We were the only guard unit of the five medevac uh, companies in the battalion in Iraq. We we were the only guard one, and the the the, the brigade and battalion commander just loved us because <laughs> so, we were we were adults, <laughs> so and a lot of experience. But, um, it was a lot, a lot of stuff. How, uh, how did that compare to the Gulf War? You know, I mean, the not showering for 72 hours and sleeping on the helicopter. Yeah, it was very different. Um, we, um, I was based out of Tikrit, um, at a place called Spiker Air Base. Um, and we had aircraft, we had forward support teams in um, Mosul, Talifar, Kirkuk, and uh, TQ, Tukatam. Um, um, we lived, I lived uh, primarily in a, on an old uh, Iraq office building, which is a loose term because it was mud uh, with tile floor and there were some rooms, several rooms. Um, we lived in there. It was nice because, um, you know, there was, you know, protection from the elements. And we had a shower bathroom container unit outside that we would use, um, shared with a lot of people. But um, other than the building wasn't grounded. So you didn't ever want to touch metal. Our door, we had a rope on it because it would shock you. But it was it was <laughs> much nicer than living in, in in an austere environment. Although, you know that you couldn't stop the dust and the dust storms and the insects and the animals and all that was everywhere. But it was much better flying out of a hard stand on a hard surface. But we landed quite often in um, in places picking up. Um, wounded or hurt people or it was soup to nuts. Um, we quite often landed in out in the desert and dust and, and crazy environments. Uh, it was it was a much better living condition. But I'll say that for sure. <laughs> During no crashes. Uh, Sorry, David. So all, all those hours, no crashes. For me, no, no. I, I um, you know, I, I guess um, I guess I got lucky. They're they're couple of times it probably could have happened and it didn't um certainly there were times when it could have happened and it didn't so my my mom used to say i had a guardian angel riding on my shoulder <laughs> there were times i'd tell her stories of things and probably shouldn't have told her <laughs> well she's your mom she's worried about you so it's good you yeah. did you yeah know, the guardian angel yeah. Yeah. Mom, you know I got a, I got a, I had an interesting chance. I spent a, I spent some time up in Talfar and I, we took this, um, we drove into a place um, called the Granary, and it was a fort basically in Talfar, which is up where the Yazidis were. I don't remember when ISIS came in and they, they had, they started um, slaughtering people, and it was the Yazidis. It was in the news a couple of few years back, five six years ago, and they they trapped them all in this Mount Sinjar and starved them. Um, back in 05, um, the Yazidis are really interesting people, um, and they love Americans. They're kind of like a Kurd, but not, um, best I can extra- describe it. And they're only in these certain areas, but they were defending a, a, a fort that we were around. It's one of the pictures I put there of a group of us standing there with, um, three Yazidis, um, 
getting to meet them and and talk to them was fascinating. And um, they didn't speak English. We didn't speak um, Yazidi. It's not Arabic. It's um, it's a Kurdish kind of dialect, I think. But we were able to communicate well enough. And they gave us um, some sliced apples. They didn't have much. They had, but they loved Americans. They had um, weapons and clothing that the U.S. had given them, and they were defending this fort, this gate. Um, really, really interesting guys. Um, and I just felt so bad for them as a people when I saw that they were being wiped out I don't know, five or six years ago. Just really genuinely interesting and nice. And um, anyway, I, it, that was a that was a really interesting time and fun to kind of meet them. Uh, yeah, what, what were what were some of the uh, I mean, the hardest times and and best times in your service? I know that's a long period of service times, but some I, I would I would say one of the hardest was. Uh, my, uh, the, the next deployment that I did, I was flying an airplane at, in Afghanistan for a year. And that one, um, that was a really difficult deployment, I think. I, I, I flew a lot. I flew almost a thousand hours in 10 months. Um, and we were doing a, we were flying an intelligence surveillance reconnaissance and ISR mission um, with cameras and sensors and all kinds of stuff. And we would be tasked um, to go out and and, and find people or, you know, those kinds of things, um, find the bad guys. And I had a really tough time with that one, I think, generally, because it seemed like, and this was, this was kind of what we said was, you know, I don't know if we're going to do, do very well when we, you know, use all of these, all of these resources and technologies um, and kill a guy with a 500 pound bomb and he's just holding a musket. You know, we were, it was, it was very difficult to wrap my arms around it. And, you know, I, I liked, I really liked the Afghan people in, in, in certain ways. Um, but I had a difficult time and I felt very removed from everything because I was flying that plane, um, you know, off and on of an air force base every day and going out and doing a mission and coming right back and going to the gym or going for a run. It just seemed very distant to me. Unlike some of the helicopter missions where I actually was kind of in at times amongst the people, right. it was very, very different. And I, I would say emotionally, that was a difficult time. It was certainly not a physically difficult time, that's for sure. I think the most physically, mentally difficult time was that 05 deployment. It was just um, very difficult flying conditions at times and and very dangerous at times. Um, um, that was probably the most taxing. I think I came back the most exhausted from that deployment. Um, I would say emotionally was probably that 2010-11 deployment where I just felt very detached from it. Um, um, anyway, I don't know mm -hmm. if that makes sense, but. No, it, no, it doesn't. As, well, what, what's some of your best experiences serving? Well, I would say for sure, <clears throat> for one, um, all the opportunities that the army has given me um, and paid for with, um, with with taxpayer money, you know, all of the opportunities, uh, flying helicopters, um, going to different parts of the world, um, learning, um, getting our, you know, um, our primary military education, you know, a lot of that learning about how the army runs culturally, learning strategic initiatives, learning um, how how the U.S. government uh, determines what we're going to do. Um, <clears throat> some of the, <clears throat> the training that the army has given me has just been phenomenal. Um, and a lot of resources spent on it. And I, I would say that <clears throat> um, it's made me a better person. Um, it's the army's taught me a lot of discipline, self-discipline, mm -hmm. um, loyalty, um, trust is a big piece. We operate on trust and, and that's an interesting concept um sometimes for people that aren't in the military is the trust issue where you really trust people to do what they're supposed to do and do what they tell you they're going to do um right um, um let's see i was going to say one other thing oh sure i think one of the great things too is all of the people um to be quite honest with you i am um, uh you know i mentioned tribe you know, I, I always felt like I belonged to a tribe and I, I belonged. Um, I think when I retire in a couple of years, I'm not really going to miss, to be honest with you, too much of the army after 36 years. I think I've had enough army, but I will really miss the people. 
um, that I work with um, over the, that I've worked with and work with currently and probably don't know yet, but we'll work with them next year. I will miss the people and some of the mission and the, the, um, the, the focus of all kind of pulling in one direction, which, which I really like. And I think I, I will miss that probably the most. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and for, for, uh, and, and in your many years, you've seen, uh, you know, a, a lot of changes in the military and all what, what's your, your thoughts of, uh, you know, today's service members, uh, you know, I think they're. I think in some ways they're smarter than I was. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, uh, I do. I, I I've noticed there's there's less of them. You know, we're having a hard time with recruiting, like a lot of people. But there's less people that want to join the military. It seems like. Um, but I would say the ones that we get and stay are high quality. Um, you know, um, critical thinkers. Um, um, willing to push back if they don't think something is right. Um, you know, I, I, I think I had a little bit too much professional courtesy at times when I was younger and would kind of do whatever I was told, regardless of what I was told. Um, I don't see that in, in people. I'm not saying people don't do what they're told or, or don't do things they don't want to do. They certainly do. But I think they're much, they're much more, I think, aware of who they are and and why they're in the military than I was. Um, I, I'm very impressed yeah. with with some of the people that are replacing me. I just I I can't get over the quality that we have. Um, so I guess I think that answers your question. Yeah, I felt uh, the same when it, when I was active. I was in the that was in the 1990s. 92 was when I started. But then when I got in the when I was in the guard, it, it was. Uh, you know, quite a, quite a gap. It was around, uh, 2009, 2010. Yeah. And, and, uh, in both cases, the quality of the, the soldier and the character of the soldier was, was tremendous. The, uh, a lot of changes in technology. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you I know, know. I the know. Uh, equipment was a lot more, uh, user-friendly later, you know, <laughs> Yeah. Very true. In, in, uh, <laughs> and which was exciting. I, I, I would. Uh, I had a different job when I went back into the guard, but I got to see the folks that were doing my old job, and I'm like, "Oh, that this is cool." <laughs> yeah. So it is, uh, it is much more user friendly, but it's also and and much more. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot more capability, but it's a lot more complex as well. Yes. And I, I think one of the the things that I have noticed about the younger generations coming in is that they're very they are very adaptable to the technology where I'm kind of the old guy that, you know, Hey, how do I get this thing to work? <laughs> Come here. Let me show you, you know, the younger guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm like, my dad now. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I guess you're, you're I, I think I know the answer to this question, but would, would you recommend uh, uh, one of our listeners who's younger joining our, you know, joining the service? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Any, any branch, um, um, the, the, um, the experiences you gain, the friendships you gain, the, the unbelievable opportunities now that are, that are being given to people who join the service, you know, paying for colleges, um, travel, um, specific training, um, that you can pick up that the, that, that you learn in the military that has civilian applications. It's, there's so much more opportunity even than when I was in. Uh, when I was younger, um, just a lot of opportunity, especially because there are less and less people joining. And a lot of these positions are wide open for people um, and and uh, and and really good friendships. You know, I, I, I've developed friendships over the years that that I, I'll have till the day I die. Um, and it was really just the only reason was because I was in the New Hampshire Guard uh, or in uh, in the Army Active Components. So, um any of the branches in service. My my youngest son just uh, just joined the guard. He'd been talking about it for years, and of all things, he joined the infantry. He's down at uh, Fort Benning, going through his basic training in AIT, five months of it. Um, but I think he see he saw that and and wanted to serve infantry. I don't know, a little crazy, but <laughs> one, one of my friends looked at me and said, "Doesn't he know his parents are pilots?" <laughs> 
<laughs> and good for him. I completely respect the infantry. I um, I learned that in the 101st that the uh, the entire military supports the infantrymen, um, and that's always been that way. So I have tremendous respect for them, and I and I completely respect and I'm proud of my son. So um, um, you keep in the family tradition, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. George, we uh, we got to wrap this up soon. It's really been a great conversation, but I have to ask you, who who is the greatest pilot you ever flew with? Oh, boy. Um, you can say you if you want. You no, it's certainly not me. No, no. The greatest that I ever flew with. Um, yeah. I would I would probably say, um, and you may find this surprising, but he's younger than me. Um, this, uh, and he's in the New Hampshire guard. His name is, um, uh, CW three, uh, Jeremy gray. He was, he is probably the best pilot I've ever flown with. He gets it. And he's just so talented and humble. Um, every time I flew with him, I just absolutely enjoyed it and learned things from him. Um, so he'd be Mr. Gray, Jeremy gray. All right. That's <laughs> really awesome. Really yeah. awesome. Well, we'll have to get him on the podcast. Oh yeah, he's a great guy. <laughs> a lot of civilian experience, and he started off as an artilleryman, uh, joined the guard, and he ended up flying, and he's flying for us now. Yeah. Well, that's sure. awesome. You know, we got to thank you for your service and and for your family service, going back many generations, and your youngest generation. You know, we're very grateful uh, for everything your family has done to keep us free. Well, thank you, Phil, and, I, and thank you for everything that you've done too, and um, the, the fundraising and the support to the Gold Star families and, and all of it. I had an opportunity one time out there to to fly a helicopter and to swim with the mission out there. It's in um, uh, I can't remember the, 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 the yeah Newfoundland Lake. That's right. Yeah, and uh, it was it was just really fun to to see how that all worked and and the excitement around it, and um, it was a real honor just to be there. So I really appreciate it, and thank you, uh, Dave, as well. I appreciate it. Well, George, George, it's such a privilege having you on Homeland Heroes Salute. And, thank you. And, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for your service and thanks for joining us. All right, thanks. This podcast is a co-production brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need and Dairy Cam, who believes a better world starts with a connected community. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org and dairycam.org. Follow the Homeland Heroes Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening, and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the uniformed services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, Swim with a Mission, Harbor Care, Veterans First, or any other organization.